Amen. So Daniel chapter 9, I will read verses 20 through 27, and that's what we will consider this morning. So Daniel writes, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, last week we looked at the first, I don't want to say first half, but we looked at the first 19 verses of this passage last week as really it's one whole unit. And the whole unit is sort of, you know, you can frame it around this. Daniel prays, God answers Daniel's prayer. So we looked at the prayer of Daniel. Now we're going to see the answer to Daniel's prayer. And as I mentioned again last week too, this passage is both one of the easiest passages to understand and certainly one of the most difficult passages to understand. Again, the easy part is Daniel prays, God answers Daniel's prayer. The hard part is interpreting the answer to Daniel's prayer, as we saw here as this angel Gabriel gives the answer to Daniel's prayer in this sort of very cryptic way of talking about weeks and, and all these things here. And it's, it's, it's caused many scholars to have many different opinions and to really rack their brains over this. And again, also, as I mentioned last week, I don't pretend to have the answer to this. It's not like I'm going to preach this message. I'm going to say, this is the answer to this passage. Thus saith the Lord, and then just close the issue. Because I understand how difficult this is. I want you to understand how difficult it is. I'm going to give you a answer. 
I believe my answer is correct, but I don't think, I don't hold this dogmatically, again, because this, this passage is rather difficult. But again, we have to understand the context of this, right? Um, you know, again, this passage will be looked at by many who like to look into the details and dig into the details of prophecy. So if you're a prophecy nut, this is one of your main passages you go to and you try to figure all the details out and everything in here. But we need, again, try to take the bigger context of this passage, right? Daniel is praying. And why is Daniel praying? Because he realizes that the time is near. Well, what time is that? Well, the time of the end of the 70 years of captivity. Because at the beginning of this, Daniel prayed because he realized that according to the prophet Jeremiah, the exile of God's people would last for 70 years. And then God would bring judgment upon the Babylonians for conquering Israel and for destroying the temple. And Daniel knows the time is near. So as he knows that the time is near, he gets on his knees and begins to pray on behalf of God's people that God would forgive them their sins that God would restore their fortunes, that God would make His face shine upon them again and be gracious to them and, and restore His people back to the way things were. So Daniel prays this prayer. It's a great prayer and it is a, an earnest prayer, right? We saw he, prayer, he prays with pleas for mercy. This is not a rote prayer. This is not a, uh, you know, he, something he's reading in a book, but he is pouring out his heart before God, that God would restore the fortunes of His people. That God would look kindly upon them. And that is the context of this passage. And here, we see again in verses 20-27 through 27 how God answers prayer. And not just that, God answers prayer in a big way. Right? We pray for things and maybe our prayers aren't big enough. Right? Because... For some reason, we're afraid to ask God for things, and our prayers are too small sometimes. Maybe our view of God is too small, but here, God gives an answer that goes well beyond anything Daniel could have imagined as he was praying this prayer. So what we will see this morning, that the answer that God gives to Daniel is that this is the future of God's people. The future of God's people is given to Daniel in a very concise form here. Now again, as we said, we believe that God answers all of our prayers, but maybe not in the way we want them answered. But God doesn't always answer our prayers in this manner that we see here, right? Because God answers His prayer by sending an angel to tell Him these things as we look and see in verses 20-23. through 23. Again, where Daniel is saying, now look, I, as I was in the middle of praying, as I was in the middle of pouring out my heart and confessing my sin and confessing the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord uh, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, that I have, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. 
Now, Gabriel, we saw last time, uh, not last week, but two weeks ago in chapter 8, Daniel, or Gabriel was the angel that uh, explained that weird dream that he had, that weird vision of the ram and the goat. And Gabriel again is sent to bring word of God's answer to Daniel's prayer. And note also in verse 23 how the answer went out immediately. It says, as, as you even began to pray at the beginning of your supplication, the command went out to, to go forth and to bring the answer. And of course, the reason, part of that reason is because Daniel is greatly beloved. He is a beloved saint. He is a faithful man of God. He has been proven faithful in this. In fact, Daniel is one of the few people in Scripture that we see almost nothing bad about, right? All we hear are the good things about Daniel. Now, of course, he sinned, right? He is a sinner like all of us. In fact, he says here, look, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, but the way Daniel is presented in the book of Daniel is as a you know, as a true man of God, as one who is greatly beloved of God. And God sends him an answer immediately as Daniel begins to get on his knees to pray. In fact, I believe that God was moved by Daniel's prayer, right? I mean, that's, again, we understand God ordains the ends and the means, and prayer is a means to, to accomplish the will of God. And this prayer moved God's heart. Daniel's prayer was a model prayer. He praised God. He confessed his sins. He confessed the sins of the people. He made petition to his covenant God. And now Gabriel has been sent, this messenger of God, the strong man of God. That's what Gabriel's name means. He is the strong man of God. He has been sent now to give Daniel an answer. And as I said earlier, what an answer to prayer he receives here. Do you know that old saying, right? Be careful what you ask for because you might get it, right? Daniel asks for God to show favor on his people and he's going to get an answer that goes way beyond anything Daniel could have ever dreamed for or hoped for. And that answer is here in verses 24 through 27. And you're probably saying, okay, give us the answer now, right? And it is one of the most difficult portions of Scripture to interpret properly. There are probably about as many opinions on this passage as there are Bible scholars who have studied it. And I'm going to try to give you all, in my opinion, the best interpretation. But again, as with other portions of not only just the Bible, but Daniel in particular, I'm going to try to focus more on what can be certain and try to focus less on what is speculative. So I'm going to try to focus more on what is certain and less on what is speculative. So without further ado, let's go. You guys strapped in, you got your seatbelts on, we are going for a ride. Verse 24, I believe, is the key to understanding this passage, where Gabriel tells Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this answer to prayer here basically comes in this form. Daniel prays for the restoration of God's people, and God sends an answer to Daniel that says there is a set period of time that more than answers Daniel's prayer for his people. 
And that set period of time is described here in the Bible, in the New King James Version, as 70 weeks. If you have an ESV, it probably also says 70 weeks. If you have an NIV or New Living Translation, the NIV has 70 sevens. The New Living Translation has 70 sets of seven. I think that's probably the best translation. Now, if you have a New King James or an ESV, you might have a footnote that says 70 sevens there. So what is this, that, this time period that Daniel gets as an answer to prayer? Well, most scholars of this passage will interpret the 70 sets of seven as 70 sets of seven years. Okay, so 70 times seven, trying to do math, right? Carry the four, bring it over. 490 years, okay? In other words, 490 years have been set for your people, Daniel. You have prayed for your people. 490 years have been set. Okay, seems simple enough. Now, the trick is, do you interpret that 490 literally? Or do you interpret that 490 symbolically or figuratively? Because there are many good and faithful Bible scholars who see this 490 years as a literal period of time, a literal 490 years. So they, they are busy trying to figure out when does it begin, when does it end. And our dispensational brothers and sisters fall into this camp. Because as you read through this passage, it seems, at least to my mind, relatively clear that it's speaking about Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus Christ. You have a Messiah or an anointed one who will be cut off. It seems to almost speak very clearly of Jesus Christ. So our dispensational brothers and sisters will take the 490 years and they'll say, okay, well, it ends with Christ. And then they'll work their way back to try to find out when the 490 years begins. Now, I hope you could see how fraught this solution is with problems because you don't start off with the answer and work your way back to the question right we don't do biblical interpretation according to the rules of jeopardy right where you're given the answer and you have to respond with the question so i'm going to argue here that the 490 years is symbolic that it is figurative that's how the best way to understand the 70 weeks and i'm going to do so for three main reasons. The first reason is, like the book of Revelation, particularly these last five or six chapters of Daniel are apocalyptic in nature. Right? This is an apocalyptic type of book. And it is the nature of apocalyptic literature to use symbols, to use images, to portray reality. So symbols and images in the, in the Bible are used to portray and symbolize and refer to something real in the world. So that's one reason why I interpret this symbolically, because just like Revelation, most of those symbols and images are not meant to be taken literally. They're meant to be taken symbolically. The second reason why I believe this to be symbolic is the precedent that we see in the Old Testament um, given in such passages such as Leviticus 26.18, which talks about how God will punish his people. In Leviticus 26.18, uh, God through, the, through Moses says, and if, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. 
So God promises to punish His people if they do not obey His Word, if they do not follow His law. He promises to punish them sevenfold for their sins. So the 70 years of exile that we saw prophesied by Jeremiah, sevenfold of 70 is 70 times 7, which is 490. And now the biggest reason, the, probably in my mind the most important reason for seeing this symbolically is the idea or the concept in the Old Testament you see in the, in the notion of the jubilee. The jubilee. In Leviticus 25, verses 8-10, through 10, we see the jubilee uh, described there where uh, we see you shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That is Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 10. So the seven sets of seven years in the jubilee marked 49 years, and at the end of that 49th year, the 50th year would be the jubilee in which in Jerusalem, throughout the people of God, they would mark... Freedom. The trumpets would be sound and debts would be canceled. If you, were, if you were an indentured slave, you would be freed. If you had sold some land to pay a debt, that land would be returned to you. It was the idea of restoration. It was the idea of liberty. It was the idea of being set free. So if 49 years marked the jubilee of God's people, then what does 490 years mark? Or 10 times 49 years? Well, to me, that signifies ultimate jubilee. Ultimate jubilee. Now again, look back at verse 24, and we see here the six-fold purpose for ultimate jubilee. As God says through through the angel Gabriel, 70 weeks or an ultimate jubilee are determined for your people, and here is the purpose for that. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. So without going into too much detail here, when you hear that sixfold promise of what God will do for His people at the end of the 70 weeks, you see the sixfold promise and purpose of ultimate jubilee. You can't help but look to Jesus Christ who fulfills all of these things. Ultimate Jubilee comes and, and answers the question and responds with, your sins are forgiven. Transgression has been finished. Everlasting righteousness has been brought in. And a most holy one has been anointed. Ultimate Jubilee is nothing less than our liberation from sin and slavery and bondage to sin and our declaration of being made righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness found in Jesus Christ. So again, verse 24, I believe, gives us the basic nugget of truth to digest. Seventy weeks until ultimate jubilee. And then verses 25 and the rest of the chapter kind of explore this in a little more detail.
So verse 25 reads, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build up Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So now Gabriel says, okay, you've got these 70 weeks. I'm going to break them down for you a little bit. You've got three periods. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. Right? Seven plus 62 is 69. You need a 70th. So you've got one week left over. And verse 29 really looks at the first 69 weeks as a whole. Right? And we're told that in that 69 weeks, the word is going to go out to restore and build Jerusalem. And then all of this is going to continue until there is the coming Messiah. Until the coming of anointed one. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now on the back of your handout there of your outline, you have some views there of how the 70 weeks should be understood. I'm just going to say right now, spoiler alert, I kind of hold to the, the bottom view. But if you advocate for a literal 490 years, then you have problems because you need to know when to start the 490 years. And there are at least three options to do that. Which call to go forth and build the temple or build Jerusalem do you use? And there's, if you look at the top part of that, there are at least three dates there. The, the, the first date of uh, Cyrus and then uh, the decree of Artaxerxes and then another decree of Artaxerxes. So you're not sure when to start. But if you see the 70 weeks as figurative, then you can avoid a lot of the speculation and massaging of the dates to make the 490 years fit. Because we know that in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had conquered Babylon, decreed the return of the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. We learn of this in the book of Ezra. The first three verses of the book of Ezra tell us this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So 538 B.C., that was the decree that Cyrus sent forth to send the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And we know, based on other books of the Bible, particularly the books of Haggai and Malachi, that the the temple was finally rebuilt around the year 520 B.C. So during this period of 69 weeks, Jerusalem and the temple are rebuilt. They are restored, as we see here, in a troubled time. And if you've read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you understand that it was troubled, right? How many times did the enemies of God's people seek to disrupt the building of the wall, to seek the rebuilding of the t to disrupt the building of the city? to seek to disrupt the rebuilding of the temple. As we saw even just a couple of weeks back, as we looked at Daniel chapter 8, we see that there are dark days ahead for God's people. If you remember during the reign of Antiochus IV, how he will desecrate the temple. 
So this, the wall, the city, the temple are rebuilt in a troubled time. But then in verse 69, we see that after the first 69 weeks are complete, an anointed one shall be cut off. So after the 62 weeks, that is 7 and then the 62, so 69. After the 62 weeks, Messiah, or an anointed one, shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Now this clearly, in my mind, seems to be referring to Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. Christ is just the Greek word that means Messiah, anointed one. Here we see an anointed one, a Messiah will come. And He will be cut off. He will be cut off, but not for Himself. That phrase cut off is covenant language. When you cut off people from God, they are, in a sense, killed, or they are, in a sense, sort of... um, you know, think of excommunicated. They are no longer part of the people of God. He is cut off, but not for himself. He is cut off for his people. In fact, it is that death of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that paves the way for all of those things we saw in verse 24. Right? It is the death of Jesus Christ that brings the finishing of the transgressions. It is the death of Jesus Christ that makes an end of sins. It is the death of Jesus Christ that makes reconciliation for iniquity. It is the death of Jesus Christ that brings in everlasting righteousness. It is the death of Jesus Christ that seals up vision and prophecy. Jesus Christ paves the way. The death of Messiah paves the way for that sixfold purpose that God has set forth for His people. Now, the tricky thing here is, who is the identity of that prince who is to come, as we see there in the middle of verse 26? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, one obvious answer is that the people of the prince who is to come is the Romans. The Roman Empire comes in in AD 70 and destroys Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. So the people of the prince to come is General Titus Vespasian and the Roman army who comes in and destroys the temple. But, okay, you think it was going to be that easy? No. I want to make an argument, and I think a convincing argument can be made, that the prince, the, the people of the prince to come, the prince who is to come is the same as the anointed a prince that you see in Verse 25, until the Messiah, the prince, and then here the prince, the people of the prince who is to come, I think that is the same person, Jesus Christ. Because even though Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, why was Jerusalem destroyed by the Romans? Because of the sin of the Jewish people, the people of the prince who is to come. Jesus, the Messiah, was a Jew. The people of the prince to come would be the Jewish people. And The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was for the judgment of their sin. They had sinned against God. They had rejected His Messiah. And this is a sign of judgment. 70 AD and the destruction of the temple is a sort of a prefiguring of end times judgment. In fact, in Jesus' own Olivet Discourse, when He is asked about the end that is to come, 
he references the destruction of the temple as a sign of how bad things will be at the end. So here we see that after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And then the the destruction of the city will come because of the sin of the Jewish people. And it will end uh, till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And now we come to the trickiest of the trickiest verses here in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay. So after wrestling with this passage for what is now two weeks, not just one week, uh, here is my take on verse 27. Because the key is, who is the he who shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now I'm going to say that the he who makes a covenant with many for one week is Jesus the Messiah. Now others, our dispensational brothers and sisters, will believe that this is the final Antichrist. That in some point in the future, there will, the Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jewish people and then will cut that covenant off in the middle of the week or in the middle of that seven year period. I'm going to argue that this is Jesus the Messiah here who is making a covenant with many for one week. And that covenant, of course, is the new covenant, which we see also prophesied in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the prophet speaks about a new covenant when he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, that covenant which they broke, which is why they're in exile in the first place, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant in which Jesus Christ comes and actually fulfills that, again, that sixfold purpose we see in verse 24. The new covenant in His blood inaugurated at the Last Supper when Jesus had the Last Supper. He inaugurates the new covenant and it was ratified on the cross when His blood was spilt and His body was broken. And that notion there of putting an end to sacrifice and offering, right? He shall bring an end to to sacrifice and offering. That is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets and the Old Testament sacrificial system. And when He died on the cross, what happened? The veil of the temple that separated the the holy place from the most holy place, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the way to God has been opened. And it has been opened by God Himself through the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sacrifice was done. The reason sacrifice was done is because Jesus Christ put an end to it all. 
His death put an end to the Jewish sacrificial system. His life and death put an end to the whole Jewish way of life. It has been completed. It has been fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. And then that last half of verse 27, he speaks of an abomination of desolation. And I believe that we see a prefiguring of that abomination of desolation at the destruction of the temple when the temple was defiled, but it also puts us close to the second coming at the end of the age when we will see a final abomination of desolation, a final Antichrist who will bring abomination and desolation as Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse. So verse 27 speaks of that 70th week, right? Because he says in the middle of the week, uh, the, the sacrifice shall be, shall be brought to an end. That, that middle of that week is the destruction of the temple. But I, I'm arguing now that we are still in that 70th week now. And I believe that based on our study through Revelation, right? As we've been going through Revelation, we see many references to a three and a half year period or a period of 42 months or a period of 1,260 days, which encompasses the entire period of time from the, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus all the way to his return. We are in the middle of that 70th week and 70 AD in the destruction of the temple marks that middle point. We're now living this day, even now, in the, in the second half of that 70th week. Well, that brings us now to the end, and I hope that I was able to bring some clarity to a very difficult passage. But again, the question can be asked, okay, well, what does that mean now for us, right? How does this apply to my life in the here and now? Well, from the first half of the passage that we looked at last week, we should be encouraged to pray, right? Daniel prayed for his, pe- for his people, and he received a very detailed answer that showed the future of God's people from his perspective. So we should be encouraged to pray too. Again, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We should be praying for the consummation, the end of the 70th week when Christ returns. But secondly, know this. Again, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes our prayers are too small. Sometimes we are afraid to ask God for big things. Here we see that God's plan for his people far surpassed anything Daniel had ever even hoped or dreamed for. Daniel was praying for a restoration of the Jewish people. Rebuild the temple. Let's get going again with the way things were. And God says, no, we're going to be done with that way. I'm going to show you a new and better way through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a great place for an amen. Let me back that up. I'm not going to bring you back to the old way of doing things. I'm going to show you a new and a better way through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, there you go. Because we saw this again last week, right? Daniel or Jeremiah 29.11, right? God says to his people through his prophet, I know the plans I have for you, plans for healing and for not for evil to give you a future and a hope. It is not the hope of a rebuilt temple. It is not the hope of a restored Jerusalem. It is the hope that is found in Jesus Christ and how he fulfills everything here in verse 24. That ultimate jubilee that we looked for. The ultimate jubilee found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And as we've seen in Daniel so far, right, these world governments that we see prophesied about, they are depicted as hideous beasts that come out of the sea, that come to destroy God's people and ravage the world. But here we see in Daniel 9, Daniel 9 shows a bright future for God's people centered again on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This future and hope was something that Daniel and his contemporaries looked forward to. Right? The time of Messiah was in the future. But here for us now in the second half of that 70th week, we look back to the finished work of Christ. That finished work of Christ which brought ultimate jubilee. The setting free of captives and the restoration of our fortunes. And the future of God's people is still in the coming of Jesus, but now it is in His second coming to finish off the, second, the 70th week and to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Find your own.